Dear Father, thank you, Father, again for this study. Thank you for bringing us through it and giving us the privilege to learn things that it seems so few people anymore these days are are aware of. And in that, Father, you have uh, blessed us. You have given us a a mature understanding of things to come. And uh, in that way, Father, we may be looking at our own lives differently and considering uh, what we're doing with our time differently as it should be. But I ask, Father, that that's not going to end with this study, that that's just the beginning, and that you would let what we learn tonight just seep in and really change how we think about our service to you now and our calling in your name, and that we would take a more serious and sober, thoughtful approach to being Christian, to being called the name of Christ, and that we, would, uh, that we wouldn't just uh, think of this as a, uh, an event that happens during the week or an identity that we share along with being a Boy Scout or being a, an athlete or being a mother or some other identity, but Father, we think of it as something altogether different. As Ezekiel has shown us, there's such a marvelous, glorious future awaiting us, and we want to be ready for it. So Father, help us through this last lesson. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're at the final lesson. In the study we've done up through this point, we've studied the condemnation of Israel that the Lord gave out to them for their failure to repent of idolatry. That was the first half of this book. And in what he gave to them in that part of the book, he promised them that they would go into exile because of their foray into idolatry. And he told them in the law that if they ever engaged in idolatry, he would visit that sin onto the children of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. And that's what they did. They went into Babylon for a period of time. But even as they went into Babylon, we studied the Lord instructing the prophet on how to reveal to them that there was yet still a glorious future for this people. A distant future, but glorious nonetheless. And that was the second half of the book, and that's what we've been in. A guided tour of the millennial kingdom, of the temple, uh, of what the work of the priests will be, what the religious life of the people will be, what the nature of Christ's dwelling presence will be in this day and time to come, and ultimately of a continuing requirement for faith on the earth for the sake of the unbelievers who will be there with us so that they might too enter into glory, but only if they have faith. And as a result, we've learned that Christ is not visible, that there isn't a, a way for an unbeliever in that time to see what they must know by faith. And that's all been in past lessons. If you haven't been here for all of it, I would encourage you to go back and listen online. Now in our final lesson, we're going to look at some very specific things. The topographical changes that mark the land of Israel, the tribal boundaries of the land of Israel, and a few other details. Now I'm sure if you and I had the chance, we'd sit in front of the Lord and ask Him a whole bunch of questions about life in the kingdom, right? We would have a, an endless discussion. But I guess not wanting to spoil the surprise for us, uh, He chose to only reveal a few things. Uh, what we've already studied, of course, and then just a few features beyond the temple itself. And one of those features that we, that we hear about tonight is a new river system that extends out from Jerusalem. So we pick up in chapter 47, and we study 47 and 48 tonight to finish the book. Let's go into 47, verse 1. And then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. 
When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. We're going to take another look here at the court of the temple. Now we're going to start where he started in his description, which was at the doorway, at the threshold of the house. Remember, house just means the temple itself, temple proper. So you see the stairs leading up to the house, up to the temple. And he talks now about a a trickle of water. Uh, He says he was taken to the threshold and he's on the south side of the altar. Now the altar sits out in the inner court, right outside this door, out in the courtyard. And as he's there by that place, he notices that there is a trickle of water coming out from the threshold. And then it says, the man leading him, the angel who's guiding him, takes him out by way of the inner north gate and then out the outer north gate. And he makes his way around the outer wall to the closed outer east gate. Remember, this gate's closed, right? The outer east gate is closed. So he has to walk around. You see the river. And then... As he gets to the outside of that outer gate, he notices there's the water just coming out. And at this point, he gets a a little walking tour. Verse 3, the heavenly escort begins to follow the stream and measure it as it goes. They measure a thousand cubits, roughly a third of a mile. So they measure a third of a mile, then they take a depth reading. How is he taking the depth readings of the water? He's standing at it. In fact, the angel is walking on dry ground, but Ezekiel has to walk in the water. So they make a measurement after a third of the mile. It's at the ankles. They make another measurement. Now it's uh, up higher. Uh, another measurement. Now it's up at his waist. Another measurement. He finally he can't walk anymore. So it kind of reaches the point where he's this little trickle has turned into a river, and he's at the point where he says, "I'm not walking anymore. I'm swimming." Now we know the Temple Mount of this day will be located in the same general vicinity as the Temple Mount of today. It's just going to look very different. We've already covered this, right? The the mountain is higher and there's nothing else is as high and, and all the rest. So clearly if they start on a high point, you know, it's not hard to understand why the water's flowing. But the gaining of volume as it goes is, is another story altogether. That would seem to be supernatural. Now Ezekiel doesn't mention it here, but the river doesn't just flow in one direction. It actually splits. Uh, according to Zechariah, we read this in Zechariah 14.8. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. So then what Zechariah says is the water comes out and it splits. Now you notice he says it exits Jerusalem, flows out of Jerusalem in in Zechariah 14.8. And then after that it says half of them flow east, half of them flow west. So the suggestion is that the river splits after it leaves the temple. Now, In the case of Ezekiel, he only talks about the eastern side, and that's because his focus is going to be on what happens to the water as it moves eastward. In fact, I want you to notice back in what I read out of Zechariah 14.8, he calls these waters living waters. So we go to Ezekiel, back to Ezekiel now, 47, verse 6. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? I have a feeling we're going to be saying that a lot in the millennial kingdom. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? He says, Son of man, have you seen this? And he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arba. 
Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea became or become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be very many fish. For these waters go there, and others become fresh. So everything will live where the water goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Engalam, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, it will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. All right, Ezekiel reaches a point here where the river is too big to walk in anymore. So he just moves to the bank, as you heard. And as he gets to the bank, he's reunited with his escort. And the escort says, have you checked this out? And there's trees up and down lining the banks of this river in the Arba. Uh, the word Arba just means desert. And in this context, then, it would refer to the Jordan River Valley, which is a desert valley. Certainly it is today. In fact, if you were to uh, go to Israel and retrace Ezekiel's steps, more or less, you would not see much water and you would hardly see any trees. In fact, let me show you some images so this is standing looking roughly uh, east-northeast from the uh, eastern side of Jerusalem uh, as you just leave what is the uh, hill country of Judah and you look out over the wilderness. And that would have been, you know, if you were to turn around from this picture and look the other direction, you'd be looking at the Temple Mount in the distance. So this is about the point where you come over the top of that mountain range that includes the Temple Mount. And then as you keep going in that direction... You see fewer trees, and fewer trees, and then you reach the Dead Sea Valley, that's in the distance there, and there's the Dead Sea. So it's, it's just pure desert. That's the wilderness that David escaped into. That's what we, when you hear wilderness in the Bible, that's the wilderness. That's what they mean by wilderness. To see it is just really dramatic. And you drive five minutes backward, and you're in what looks like Southern California, in Jerusalem. It's just like Southern California. You know, you come over the mountain range, and it's desert on the backside. It's exactly the same. In fact, that's a really good way to understand what it's like to be in Israel. It's a very small California. You can ski in the morning and be on the beach in the afternoon. Clearly, things are going to look quite different. Uh, it's not an alpine desert. It's not a sandy desert. It's now going to be a place where trees are flourishing. Furthermore, we're told here that the river is made to flow into the sea. Now, the only sea... Uh, of any kind that's on the eastern side is the one I showed you a minute ago, the southern end of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because the Jordan River fills it from the north, and the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee in the far north down into the Dead Sea. And as it fills it up, there's no outlet. It doesn't flow out anywhere. And it's hot, as you can tell. It's uh, about 1,500 feet below sea level, so uh, it just evaporates. And it's the lowest uh, body of water in the world. So with water constantly coming in with sediment and then evaporating, the sediment stays behind. And therefore, you have now a, a water body that's uh, in such a high concentration of salt that nothing can live in it. It's about 35% uh, salt. In fact, that's, that's right at saturation. 
So if you take your hands into the water and you scoop, the bed of the, of the lake is, is literally granular salt. So you take your hand and pull it up and you have a handful of salt uh, from, the, from the base, from the bottom. Hence is the Dead Sea. But Ezekiel says that when the water from the temple arrives at that body, the water flowing east will reach this sea and transform it into fresh water for the kingdom. Now, he does not say if this happens miraculously, that is, you know, instantaneously, or if it just naturally refreshes it over time from diluting the salt over time. But the sense here is miraculous because, it, you know, it says it gets filled with every kind of fish. And just making a body of water fresh, for example, does not instantly stock it with fish. So it would seem as though the Dead Sea just comes to life miraculously out of the water that flows, hence, you know, living water, as Zechariah called it. And as such, it's a beautiful millennial picture of God's grace bringing life to the dead, isn't it? Right? Ezekiel adds that fishermen will fish there from Engedi, which is, uh, Engedi is just north of Masada, which is in the southern end of the Dead Sea. And Engelem is a place that's unknown, but if you assume that he's trying to stretch from south to north, if Engedi's in the south, this must be somewhere north. So essentially the whole of it. Then fish will be in there, it says, according to their kinds. In other words, there will be so much variety of fish that the fishermen will begin to specialize in their catch. I only catch grouper or something like that because there's so many kinds of fish so plentiful they can do that. It says that the salt marshes will remain, though. And if you go there today, um, you see it's a very flat area. This area all here is along the banks. This is all marsh in the sense that it's not stable ground. There's sinkholes. It's uh, a lot of salt deposits, and they don't even let you go out there. I mean, people die. You can just kind of sink into a sinkhole because it's very unstable ground. That all remains salt, he says, which would seem to suggest it's a testimony of sorts for how the Lord has changed the water from salt to fresh. I mean, there won't be any other good explanation for why you have a freshwater body of, of water with a bunch of salt all around it. Right? So it's a miracle for the world to see. Furthermore, there will be fruit trees lining the Dead Sea, verse 12. Now, that's also very different. Very few trees grow. Nothing grows on the banks of the Dead Sea because of all the salt. And uh, those trees, in this case, will be special trees, not just because they're growing in marsh water necessarily, but because they don't lose their leaves. They produce fruit throughout the year, every month, and the leaves are for healing. Now, the connection between the trees' sustaining power and the water coming to feed it it makes a very clear connection for you, right? You see the water that comes out of the temple traveling down and making the trees do what they do, and it communicates the life-giving, sustaining power of Christ coming through the water. The world can't see Jesus, right? He's not visible, but they can see the river, and they can see the effects of the river, and in so doing, they see a visible fulfillment of what Jesus said in John seven thirty-seven when he said, um, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So that will become not just spiritual metaphor, which obviously it is, but it will also be physical reality by the fact of this river. But there's an even more interesting connection here. Uh, the, the, the idea of a tree that does what it's said to do here, this bank of trees, draws an immediate connection for us back to the Garden of Eden and to the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, we read this. Revelation 22, 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Very similar description, right? Now, that's a different river. It's a different tree. We know that because it's in a different age. It's in the new heavens and new earth. That, that doesn't even exist yet. It replaces the kingdom, okay? But you see the similarities, right? A tree that is fed by living water coming out of the throne. That's the same. Uh, a tree yielding fruit constantly in monthly increments. That was the same. And tree with the power to heal you by its leaves. That's the same. So apparently, the tree of life that's in the new heavens and new earth has a parallel in the kingdom. There is a tree of life in the kingdom, or trees of life. And if there are common trees between these two ages in, in God's plan, then it suggests a common purpose. Well, what is the purpose of the tree of life? Well, you actually get that in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which, from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction, to guard the way to the tree of life. So we learn in that story that the tree of life had the power to keep Adam and woman's physical bodies alive forever by sustaining and healing them continually. In fact, the Lord had to drive them out of the garden, and he had to station an angel to bar them from returning lest they should eat and continue to live in their sinful state indefinitely. So obviously God has designed this tree to reflect that our supply is from God, who upholds everything by the word of his power. That is to say, he could have done anything he wanted, any way that he wanted, but in the way he chose to make things work in creation, he's established that even in an immortal state, even in a state of life in which you have no fear of death, as Adam and woman did before they fell, Nonetheless, they had to eat that tree to stay alive. That they needed the, the leaves to heal their body from its natural deterioration of some sort, or from other injuries, perhaps. Who knows? You know, you ever wondered that when you're immortal? What happens if you, you know, get in a car accident? Have your head cut off? Well, how do you stay immortal? You know, well, there must be some way to heal me without it necessarily resulting in my death. You know, those are sort of the, the odd little questions you can play with in your mind that you can't easily reconcile. Well, and I'm not trying to do that here, but what I'm saying is there's clearly a need for healing and a need for sustaining power in order to continue living forever. The tree of life is that instrument. But because it's fed by water from the throne, it makes clear to the immortal that you're sustained by God. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, if you're living immortally, it's not hard at that point to just say, I got, the, you know, I got it from here, God. I don't need you anymore. I'm, I'm, I don't have any reason to care about you anymore. Nothing threatens me anymore. This system ensures that we're never too far from remembering that we have to go to this tree regularly because God sustains us. It's a mechanism of teaching, but it's still there. It's still real. It's still required. And in fact, it's so good at what it does that if Adam and woman had maintained their presence in the garden despite sin and the curse, this tree would have, as it were, sustained them in the face of the curse. You know, put, put the curse on pause, so to speak healed them continually as long as they had access to it. Or so that seems to be the case, because that's what God said. All right? But here's the most interesting detail. This tree, now we see it in the garden, we see it in the kingdom, we see it in the new heavens and new earth. It only appears on earth during periods when immortality exists on earth. 
In the garden, man and woman were immortal until their expulsion from the garden for sin. In the new heavens and new earth, everyone's immortal because there is no longer any death. And here you see in the kingdom a tree of life. And of course, we already know there are immortal human beings in the kingdom, though not all are immortal. There are, we will be there. We will be immortal. So here's the implication. Immortality itself requires the tree. Immortality requires the tree. That is, that the way God grants physical immortality is through the mechanism of this tree. In doing so, he ensures we never forget where our supply of life comes from. Our spiritual eternal life is not based on this tree, but the body itself that, that is our container appears to be dependent on this tree. It does not exist in this age because there's no one on the earth right now who is immortal. But if it were here, immortality could reign. You don't want to be immortal in this age because there is no one in this age who lives here glorified. So immortality in this age would mean immortality in a sinful body, not the, not the future you want. But in every other age, it's there. In fact, that might be the ultimate fulfillment of John 7. That is, when Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rivers of living waters, he may not have just been suggesting the spiritual side of that. He may have been suggesting the whole of it. In the kingdom, where does the water come from? Jesus. And it is the living water that keeps us alive, physically, through its influence on the tree. All right. Interesting detail. Let's move on to the boundaries of the tribes of Israel. This is chapter 47, verse 13. It says, Thus says the Lord God, This shall be the boundary by which you divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of, of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your forefathers. And this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. This shall be the boundary of the land. On the north side, from the great sea, by the way of Hethlon, to the entrance of Zedad, Hamath, Berthah, Sabriam, which is between the border of Damascus and uh, and the border of Hamath, Hazer Hadakan, which is by the border of Haran. The border, the uh, boundary shall extend from the sea to Hazer Anan at the border of Damascus, and on the north, toward the north, is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. The east side, from between Haran, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel, shall be the Jordan. From the north border to the eastern sea, you shall measure. This is the east side. Moving on, the south side, he says, toward the south shall extend from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribath Kadesh to the brook of Egypt and to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. The west side shall be the great sea from the south border to a point opposite Lebo Hamath. That is the west side. So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as to the native-born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now we're going to look at the boundaries. Notice there at the very end that if you're a foreigner, non-Jew, living in the land, and your child is born in the land, it's a naturalized citizen. Uh, it's just like we have here, birth citizenship. They're equal in Jewish inheritance rights. Anyway... Let's look at the boundaries. Now we're going to start by looking uh, at modern boundaries because to appreciate the borders, it helps to see Israel's borders today, which are not meaningful biblically. They're just who, they just happen to be what they are, but you can at least get a reference point by looking at them, okay? So here's uh, Israel today in blue, that darker blue right here. 
West Bank is under Israeli control. Uh, they just never annexed it because if they annexed it, they would instantly become a majority Arab nation. They can't annex an area of land without making them citizens, and they don't want to make a bunch of Arab citizens because then they vote, and next thing you know, you'd have an Arab prime minister of Israel. So that's why they don't annex these territories. They can't. But at the same time, they can't let them go, or that is to say, turn them over to an Arab nation because they've got an enemy on their border. Uh, so they just hold on to them as occupied territory, and they don't give them back, and they don't annex them. Kind of a hard problem to solve. Hence, no peace in the Middle East. Anyway, that's Gaza and the West Bank. Those are the two territories they won't annex. But everything else in blue is Israel proper. It's much smaller than it was under David or Solomon. Uh, those, we don't have pictures of that, but they consumed a much greater per, uh, territory. And it's much smaller than the kingdom borders you just saw described. All right, because the borders you see described in what I just read out of Ezekiel, it is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. So here's what Abraham was told in Genesis 15.8. And on 15.8 we hear this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And then he gives him a rough estimate of what the land is. He says, From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. All right? So he said, From the river Egypt, and then from the river Euphrates. That's a long way off, isn't it? That's your southern and northern borders, roughly. Then you go to Joshua, and you find Joshua getting another opportunity to discuss the division of the land. And in Joshua, you read this. Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Well, this confirms for us the southern and northern borders, and it obviously adds the, the western border, which is the Great Sea, and it defines Lebanon and the wilderness, which are more or less continual within the boundaries we heard earlier from Abraham. So it's just continuing to reaffirm the same boundaries. You're starting to get some landmarks on which to draw lines. All right? Now... Let's draw the lines according to what we read in Ezekiel. Here's the passage in Ezekiel that we read that included all those names. And let's just circle them all. Some of them we don't know, so some aren't included there. But of the ones we do know, that's where they are. First thing you do after this is draw some lines. Now we can kind of draw lines around where the limits are, right? So you're kind of in that range, somewhere in that range, right? You don't necessarily have to go all the way up to the river, the river is just sort of a rough boundary point, just like the, the rest of them are. The only hard boundary points are, are the waters, the Jordan and the sea. Those are the only points where you have a hard line. And that is roughly what Israel will have as their territory in the kingdom. And that is more or less what God has defined from the beginning could be Israel's. Okay, So that is still much larger than it is today, obviously. In fact, if you want to superimpose one on the other... That's, you're getting, they're getting a lot of Syria, they're getting all of Lebanon, they're getting parts of Jordan and e- current Egypt. All right, so now let's look at the tribal allotments within that area. Okay, He's already said he wants these allotments to be equal. He mentioned that Joseph would have two, a double portion. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's just go down a little further in chapter 48. Let's just get through where he describes each of the tribes. He says in verse 1, Now these are the names of the tribes. From the northern extremity... 
beside the way of Hethlon to Lebo Hamath, as far as Hazaranan to the border of Damascus, toward the north, beside Hamath, running from east to west, Dan, one portion. Beside the border of Dan, from the east side to the west side, Asher, one portion. Beside the border of Asher, from the east side to the west side, Naphtali, one portion. Beside the border of Naphtali, from the east side to the west side, Manasseh, one portion. Beside the border of Manasseh, from the east side to the west side, Ephraim, one portion. Beside the border of Ephraim, from the east side to the west side, Reuben, one portion. Beside the border of Reuben, from the east side to the west side, Judah, one portion. All right, here's what he's just asked us to do. He tells us, tells Israel, just start carving that space up, dividing it equally. Everybody gets a portion. Start at the top, move down the, the line, here are your tribes, draw a line east to west, east to west, and give them the, the territory as a result. So why did I draw it that way? As opposed to moving the lines a little one way or the other? Well, it's just roughly dividing it equally. So we don't know any more than that. That's, in fact, he says they're going to divide it up in the kingdom, so they're going to figure that out. They might draw the lines, you know, they might not cut a lake in half, or they might draw it around a mountain, or they might do like we do today, just to make accommodation for geographical features. But they're going to draw it in some way that's fair. And that's how they're going to start to give everybody their land. Remember, what we see today is not what we'll see then. So if you're thinking, oh, gee, Dan got a bunch of desert. Not necessarily going to be the case, right? We've already seen how much things are changing, so uh, I wouldn't assume anything like that. It's all going to be good land. All right. Now, the tribes descend in the order listed here in equal portions, except for Joseph. We heard that, right? Um, Joseph gets a double portion. Now, what you'll also notice as we get through this list is he doesn't get listed at all. You'll never see the tribe of Joseph up there when we're done. To understand why Joseph isn't counted, you have to remember some of Israel's history. You have to remember that originally Jacob had 12 sons. And when Jacob later discovered that Joseph was alive, uh, and he had married an Egyptian woman and already had two sons of his own by that point, when Jacob finally comes into the land with all his family, he told Joseph, I'm going to adopt your first two sons as mine. Any other sons you have after this are yours. These first two are mine. Literally, Joseph's first two sons became Jacob's sons, like you would adopt any other child. Which meant that Jacob went instantly from having 11 kids to 13 kids. Because Joseph, he considered gone. He took his sons in place of him. Joseph had essentially become an Egyptian at that point. Not literally for our sake. I'm not saying biblically. I'm saying from Jacob's point of view, his son was in Egypt serving a pharaoh, had an Egyptian wife. He wasn't going to leave the pharaoh. He wasn't going to leave his job. He was there for life. And it was a good thing for Israel that he'd do that. But the point is, Jacob in his family, who was his family going to, re- who was going to receive his inheritance? Could Joseph have received his inheritance? So where would Joseph's inheritance have gone ultimately? His children in Egypt would have kept it and it would have been Egyptian property. I mean, it would not have gone where it needed to go. So that's why Jacob said, I'm going to take your sons and bring them back into the family so that your line is still accommodated, it's still included in the plan of God with this, with this people of Israel. But I can't let you get the inheritance personally, Joseph, because it would take it out of the family. It would put it in Egyptian hands. So he adopts his two sons. And Joseph obviously was supportive of this. So in that way, we can say Joseph receives the double portion of the inheritance, right? And what I mean by that is this. In Eastern culture, the most favored son, which is usually the oldest, received a double portion 
of the father's inheritance. So this is how that worked. You take the number of sons that you had, and you divide your inheritance by, you add one to that number, and you divide your inheritance evenly. So if you have six sons, you divide your inheritance in sevenths, and give the oldest son two portions. If you have eight kids, you divide it into ninths, you know, you get the point, right? So no matter what the division is, the oldest is getting more twice what everyone else is getting. That was the tradition in the East. Now, in the case of the family uh, that God created through Abraham, he gave them an inheritance. He created them out of nothing. Abraham had nothing. He left everything in, in Ur. He showed up literally penniless, apart from what was on his back and what he carried on a camel, I guess. He came with nothing. He owned no land. And in the course of his life, Hebrews tells us, Abraham never possessed anything of the land of Canaan. He never took anything. He never owned any land. He never set down stakes in the, and made property. So what was his inheritance to his own family? He had none, apart from what God said his inheritance would be. So God created an inheritance for Abraham. And, the, and so you have Abraham, and his inheritance took two parts. God, in Genesis 12:1 said this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. Translation, leave your inheritance. And then he says in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Translation, I will give you an inheritance to make up for what you're losing, that is, what you're leaving behind, and mine will be better. And then he says, And the one, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in that last statement, he adds a new wrinkle. He says, not only are you going to receive an inheritance that I'm going to make sure you have in place of what you lost, but I'm also making a promise through you that Paul later explains was a promise to bring the Messiah, the seed promise. Now, he doesn't use the word seed here. He alludes to it. He talks about the families of the earth being blessed. But the story of Genesis, and the reason we even call the book Genesis, because of the genealogies that are in the book, The story of Genesis is the story of how God fulfills, or begins to fulfill, a promise that he made to woman in the garden, that through her seed would come a Messiah. And the tracing of that promise is through a line of humanity that dominates the story of Genesis. Genesis doesn't follow everybody's possible genealogy. Why? Because it only cares about one line, the line by which Messiah will come, the seed promise. Eventually, it lands on Abraham. And at this point, God begins to explain how the seed promise works to this man and to his successors. And what he told Abraham is, starting here in 15 and then elaborating on it several more times in Genesis, he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you an inheritance. Here, And at a later point, as we've already studied, he showed him what the borders of that inheritance would be. All this land will be your inheritance. And he says, I have given you a promised Messiah through whom you will bless all nations. Now, that's an inheritance. Those two things combined is Abraham's inheritance. What can you do with an inheritance? You can pass it on. Just like you do in your will, it's an inheritance. It can be passed on. The difference here, though, is that it's God's property. God's the one who designed the inheritance or defined it. So he also gets to pick who inherits it. Not Esau, or, or not Ishmael, Isaac, he says. So Isaac would not have been the natural choice, He wasn't the firstborn of Abraham. God says, I'm picking who gets it, not you. 
goes to Isaac. So Isaac receives both. And then he tells Isaac, I'm picking, not you. Before the two were born, so that neither done good nor bad, he chose Jacob, not Esau, because Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. Right? Simple fact of of sovereign God. He chooses what he wants. So he chose Jacob. Jacob gets both. And then it changes in a very interesting way. Now uh, Jacob has a bunch of kids. Now you can divide the inheritance, but you cannot divide the seed promise. Now looking at the sons, they're in the order of birth there. So Reuben would have been the one to receive the double portion and presumably the seed promise. But Reuben disqualifies himself by uh, compromising his mother, his father's wife, dishonoring, I should say, his father's bed. The next two sons, Simeon and Levi, likewise dishonored themselves. So you end up with Judah being first in line. And if you don't know how all of that happened, you can go back and listen on Genesis. So you now have Judah in the number one position, and yet you have a seed promise you can't divide. So the seed promise goes to the number one position, which is why our Lord is born of Judah. But the inheritance is divided out in the way that we just heard. Everyone gets a portion. Now who is going to get the double portion? Well, in a sense, no one does, because everyone on this list from here on, everyone else on that list gets one portion, except... We just said Joseph is not a son anymore for the purpose of inheritance. Nothing that is Jacob's can go to Joseph because Joseph's in Egypt and it's going to stay there if he got it. So that's where Jacob fixed the problem. He did this. He put Ephraim and Manasseh in place of Joseph. Now you have everybody getting... They got effectively the double portion. Joseph effectively is getting the double portion because his two sons each get a portion. But the rest of it was just divided equally, as we're just seeing. So there's two outcomes of this. First of all, because of the way he divided the seed promise and the inheritance from one another, there can no longer be one person to carry both. The Abraham-Isaac-Jacob transition can't be repeated another generation. It stops with Jacob. Because in the prior generations, the men each got both. So it could move in sync together to the next generation. Once you get to Jacob, now it's divided out. One person got the seed promise. Everyone else got a piece of the inheritance. At that point, there is no more succession. It stops there. That's why we're still talking about the 12 tribes of Israel and not some later generation. God has essentially put a stop by the virtue of this methodology. He put a stop to any additional moving down the line. Now it's just going to stay with Israel. The seed promise continues to flow through Judah. The inheritance is equally divided amongst the rest of the tribes. That's it. That's the end of it. That's why we say now Israel, the the other name for Jacob, is where God's promises lie. We don't say they lie with Isaac or Abraham. We say they lie with Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. Now, why did he go through the first two generations before he got to Israel, before he got to Jacob? Well, arguably because there's a picture of God in that, in the form of the Trinity, which the Father and the Son... And then Israel is God's dwelling place, like the Spirit dwells in us. So there's, a, there's an opportunity for God to create a picture in that. All right, there's more there if you want. It's in Genesis. Meanwhile, Judah's in the lead position. The seed promise goes to him. The inheritance of the land is divided. And taking us back to this picture now, we stopped at this point where he did, where the text ended in Judah. The next line down, the next space down, 
would take us to uh, the next son in list, but we skipped one if you just if you didn't notice. We skipped Levi. And Levi has no portion. If you go back to this chart, Levi is in this list, but after you add the extra two sons, how many people do you have total now? After I add those two sons at the bottom, I end up with 13. Now, don't, just because I scratched out the first three names, they don't, they still get a part of the inheritance, they just didn't get the seed promise, right? So, now I have 13 names there if you add them all up. There's only 12 portions in the land, so where is the 13? Well, Levi, Levi doesn't get its own territory like the others do. Levi is in the territory devoted to the sanctuary, to the temple. And speaking of that, let's read how that allotment goes. That's in verse 8. And he says, Besides the border of Judah, from east side to the west side, shall be the allotment which you shall set apart, 25,000 cubits in width, and in length like one of the portions, and the east side to the west side, from the east side to the west side. And the sanctuary shall be in the middle of it. The allotment that you shall set apart to the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. The holy allotment shall be for these, namely for the priests. Toward the north, 25,000 cubits in length. Toward the west, 10,000 in width. Toward the east, 10,000 in width. And toward the south, 25,000 in length. And the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the midst. It shall be for the priests who are sanctified of the sons of Zadok, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the sons of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. It shall be an allotment to them for the allotment of the land, a most holy place by the border of the Levites. Alongside the border of the priests, the Levites shall have 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. Moreover, they shall not sell or exchange any of it or alienate this choice portion of land, for it is holy to the Lord. The remainder, 5,000 cubits in width and 25,000 in length, shall be for common use for the city, for dwellings and for open spaces, and the city shall be in its midst. These shall be its measurements. The north side, 4,500 cubits. The south side, 4,500 cubits. The east side, 4,500. And the west side, 4,500 cubits. The city shall have open spaces. On the north, 250 cubits. On the south, 250 cubits. On the east, 250. And the west, 250. The remainder of the length alongside the holy allotment shall be 10,000 cubits toward the east and 10,000 toward the west. It shall be alongside the holy allotment, and its produce shall be food for the workers of the city. The workers of the city, out of all the tribes of Israel, shall cultivate it. The whole allotment shall be 25,000 by 25,000 cubits. You shall set apart the holy allotment, a square, with the property of the city. The remainder shall be for the prince, on the one side and on the other holy allotment and of the property of the city, in front of the 25,000 cubits of the allotment toward the east border, and westward in front of the 25,000 toward the west border, alongside the portions. It shall be for the prince. And the holy allotment and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the middle of it, exclusive of the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the middle of that which belongs to the prince, everything between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall be for the prince. If you divide up and sort of look at some of the numbers, you're looking at a space that's similar to what we see today in the U.S. in the form of Washington, D.C., at least in terms of geography. Uh, it's a land that doesn't belong to any other tribes, set apart from everything else for common use. And it's divided up into sections, so you have one section, 25,000 by 10,000, that is for the priests of Zadok. They're the ones who can actually go in and administer in the temple, remember. Then you have another section next to that for Levites. They're the lesser priests who, because of their past poor performance, they can only kind of maintain the building and cut up the animals. Remember that? None of the land can be sold or exchanged. The priests don't have the right to sell the property. It's not theirs. Uh, then you have another allotment next to that. That was in verses 15 
through 19, and that's for the city itself. So here you have like a public work. The city is set up, open spaces, you saw that, you know, open spaces, meeting places, farming, uh, includes places of green belt and homes. I mean, it sounds very modern, doesn't it? Just like we would do city planning. Uh, in verse 20, we're told that entire allotment for the priests and for the city, if you took all of that, where the priests of Zadok are and the priests of the Levites and the city itself, and you kind of looked at that whole space, it's 70 square miles, which is something on the order of, of Bear County, maybe a little smaller, but somewhere in the order of Bear County. And then you have one man, King David, who receives a portion of land on either side of it within that band that's almost as big as what every other tribe gets by itself. That tells you something about how the Lord felt about David. All right, now we go to the rest of the tribes. Verse 23. As for the rest of the tribes, and this is just a listing of the names, from the east side to the west side, Benjamin, one portion, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to read through the names because it's the same statement for each one. You have Benjamin, and then Simeon, and then Issachar, then then Zebulun, and Gad. And then verse 28, And beside the border of Gad, at the south side toward the south, the border shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribeth Kadesh to the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lot to the tribes of Israel for an inheritance, and these are their several portions, declares the Lord God. Finally, we are going to see descriptions of the city and its gates. This ends the study, verse 30. These are the exits of the city on the north side, 4,500 cubits by measure, shall be the gates of the city, named for the tribes of Israel, three gates toward the north, the gate of Reuben, one, the gate of Judah, one, the gate of Levi, one. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, shall be three gates, the gate of Joseph, one, the gate of Benjamin, one, the gate of Dan, one. On the south side, 4,500 cubits by measurement, shall be three gates, the gate of Simeon, one, the gate of Issachar, one, the gate of Zebulun, one. On the west side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates, the gate of Gad, one, the gate of Asher, one, the gate of Naphtali, one. The city shall be 1,800 cubits roundabout, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. So, interestingly, in all of Ezekiel's description, the name of the city is never given in Ezekiel. But Zechariah gives it to us in 14.8 when he says that waters will flow out of Jerusalem. And, of course, it's no surprise to us that it's called Jerusalem. It's just that Ezekiel never says that. The city, though, is is going to be one and a half miles on each side uh, of its four sides. Not very big in that regard. And each side has three gates for a total of 12 gates, and the gates are named after the tribes, as you saw. Now, that's a design that should be familiar to you, because if you've read Revelation, that's essentially the same way that the new Jerusalem is designed, as it were, in the time of the new heavens and new earth, except in New Jerusalem terms, it's a cube, not a square, uh, because it's the whole earth, for the most part. There is nothing else uh, in the new heavens and new earth. In both cases, 12 entrances named after the tribes. What that tends to tell us is that just as you see indications in our current world about what's coming in the next, I mean, for example, the Dead Sea becomes the Fresh Sea, and Jerusalem is on Mount Zion here, and it's going to be in the same place there, but just different. Similarly, in the kingdom age, there will be allusions to what's coming in the next age. You'll see a city with these 12 gates to remind you that there's a future world that will be similarly made. So it seems as though God continues to want to tell us a little bit about the next stage as we get into each stage. And then lastly, that city will also have a name called the Lord is there. That's Jehovah Shammah in Hebrew. But it's interesting that it's the Lord is there, not the Lord is here. Because most of the world won't be in the city, and so most of the world, in referring to it, will be saying the Lord is there. 
because they aren't there. And again, it's a testimony to the unbelieving world that God resides in a certain city on earth. But faith will be required. But the Lord will have His people there be blessing them in a close relationship that He promised and He fulfills. All right, well, that's it. That's the book of Ezekiel. Hope you guys learned something. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll break if you need to stick around, or want to stick around, rather. You're welcome to, and we'll see what kind of questions you guys have. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give you all the praise and thanks and glory for bringing us through this study. I may have taught it, Father, but you were the teacher. And I may have spoken, Father, but they heard you. And I thank you, Father, that you have been faithful to us in this study and brought it to its conclusion and taught us so much through it. Let us be instruments of your hand to teach others in the years to come as we await our chance to enjoy it in person. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.